This is Journeys in Podcasting, and this morning we have the uh, pleasure of talking to Janae Kung, and who is working at Stanford and teaching interactive writing. Actually, let me tell you, let me let you tell your story because you'll you'll tell it better. So, Janae, who are you, and uh, what are you teaching? Them? Sure. So, thanks first of all for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Um, Right, so I work, my job is I'm an academic technology specialist in the program in writing and rhetoric at Stanford. Uh, that means that for the last four years that I've been there, since 2016, I've been supporting uh, instructors and undergraduate students in the critical adoption of technologies uh, to enhance their work as readers and writers and researchers. Great. I came to know you through an article in Higher Ed, uh, Insights into a Day in the Life. And at the same time I'm reading this, I'm also reading a letter from my future director, who is taking the strategy of creating speculative narrative to give us a picture of what it might look like to be teaching this fall. We all find ourselves in this very awkward position of not knowing how to plan uh, for this kind of hybrid teaching. Uh, for example, I very well could be teaching from here in Bogota digitally to a small classroom of students in Khartoum, Sudan, uh, but there will also be students joining online. And so this you know, opens up all these new strategies of kind of you know, planning for pure digital to every other uh, space that you can enter yourself. So in your article, what fascinated me is that you took this speculative strategy and you gave us this very uh, interesting picture of the different ways that a professor might be thinking about their students' work and how they might be responding to them. Um, so. Uh, I hope it's not too awkward. I'm going to read you a segment of uh, what you wrote, and then I'm going to ask you some questions, and we'll see how it goes from there. So sure, wrote, sounds good. You broaden how students, oh, so you broaden how students submitted informal small assignments to your class this term, and you've enjoyed seeing the range. In addition to allowing students to send responses in the form of voice memos or written text, they also submit notes or responses in the form of a drawing. Many students take pictures with their phones or digital sticky note brainstorming. EdTech specialist in you, uh, specialist gave you a few tools you could share with your students to help them accomplish this task. While learning online, this is me, uh, it might deprive us of these kind of synergistic, synergy forms of communication, the bandwidths of proxemics, eye contact, gesture, facial effect, vocal modulations, all the things that are very awkward in this kind of Zoom environment. You seem to be saying that we're also afforded new bandwidths into student cognition, new insights into how we learn. How do you communicate these new bandwidths to professors and students you work with? And maybe how does this give us a broader perspective of our cognitive architectures? Sure. Well, that's such a great question. And I think it gets really to the heart of what I was trying to unpack in that speculative vision for teaching in a primarily online environment, which is that teaching online really does allow us not just kind of this concept of new, of new bandwidths into student cognition, but it actually allows us to open up new ways of thinking about um, not just cognition, but engagement, right? So that is to say that when we teach in a face-to-face -face classroom, you're right that we have lots of cues visual cues, right? Con eye contact gestures, you pointed out, um, that help us understand whether people are comprehending the content at hand. Um, and But when we move online, what we actually wind up being able to do is we actually give students a lot of different options, um, even with, in the absence of those 
kind of physical cues and gestures. So I mentioned things like having students submit video or audio or infographics or digital post-it notes, because that might actually even give us a fuller range of understanding how students are processing material and what options given a sort of free range of choice might actually be best for them in terms of how they might process or respond to an assignment. Um, a limitation, of course, of, of any speculative vision is that it's intended to be kind of broad and universal. So I recognize that these options that I described for how students could submit or engage with work might um, be too big or might kind of fall outside the scope of how teachers want to align particular activities and outcomes together to assess understanding. But the point I was really trying to make there was that this doesn't have to be, we don't have to look at online education solely through the lens of deficit or solely through the lens of things that we're missing. We can consider online education as a moment of opportunity to say, hey, wow, when I teach face-to-face, -face, we don't really have the opportunity or it's kind of too much of a lift to ask students to use multimedia in all of these really rigorous ways. But more online, that's, that, that is the only option that we have in many ways, right? So this environment allows us to say, hey, students, I'm going to give you a toolkit or a pathway through different ways that you can submit or respond to this prompt. And as an instructor, I'm going to uh, be okay with understanding these multiple pathways to um, engagement. So I want to get to your more explicitly your question, how do you communicate this? And I think the most successful way that I've managed to communicate this, this opening up, um, moving away from a deficit model and towards, I think, a more positive um, kind of take on what this can mean is to put it through the lens of a theory that I really like called universal design for learning, um, which basically makes the case that when you design, you're probably familiar, I'm hearing a nod and I'm seeing a nod and, and hearing a yes sound, um, <laughs> which you know pretty much is the idea, right, that, that we serve all students better when we give them multiple means of representing ideas, multiple means of engaging with ideas, and multiple means of processing those ideas, that this is good, um, not just, some, so sometimes universal design for learning is, is discussed in the context of disability. Um, but what universal design for learning basically posits is, is that uh, accommodations for someone really mean accommodations for everyone. Everyone benefits from choice. Um, and I think for students of different age groups, you would of course have to offer some framing and scaffolding around those choices so students could, could make them reasonably without feeling overwhelmed um, I, I teach primarily in higher education, of course, so um, we have some expectation that students will have had enough educational experiences to be able to make some good choices. So that is one way I kind of communicate this to, to instructors, too, is I kind of say, look, your students have had a range of experiences. They, will be, they, will, they should be able to kind of articulate and know what, what works for them if you invite them to think reflectively. But I think even for younger students, right, giving them some choices and asking them to engage with those choices, um, to me seems really powerful and useful as well. Um, so that's all to say that. Um, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, it can be persuasive, I think, regardless of age. But your approaches to that might differ, just depending on what's available. Yeah, that's definitely been the experience in elementary. That when when we do broaden bandwidth, so to speak, and start using different modalities to process things. Um, the universal design uh, factor comes in and it the empowerment is that different leaders start appearing in the classroom that all of a sudden because the writing assignment they're doing is involving video editing 
then this student just lights up and becomes the leader of that group and that activity. And that's the argument that I've also made in the past is that these are not things that we're doing for disabled students or students with special needs. These are things that are enabling a classroom of students to work better together. Like everyone is advancing better in this way. Um, so I think I like how you articulated that. And I also like how teaching in third grade has a lot of the same uh, problems that you're trying to solve with upper ed. I think the the impediments that I have found are more in the way that teachers think through tools. Hmm. You put a new tool into a learning environment and it's much more complex than than I thought it would be, you know, it, they, the one who explains this best to me, and I think we'll get, I get to this a little bit later in the questions is, is Gibson, uh, mm-hmm. who talks about um, the affordances of a tool, that your experiences, your capabilities, the goals you're able to set, uh, and the beliefs you have in, you know, in this case, like a, a theory of learning, um, will greatly impact how that tool is adopted and what it's able to leverage with that environment. And so the adult, uh, impediment has actually been the real challenge of, you know, getting teachers to kind of talk about what a learning theory is through these tools, because those are things that we often, at least in lower ed, um, we don't often get a chance to talk a whole lot about, like, what is your theory of even knowledge or how kids learn? Um, And maybe at higher ed, that's a little bit easier to approach. So I'm not sure how that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. Um, Um, You go Yeah. (laughs) All all, all I was just going to say is that I think in higher ed, we have a lot to actually learn um, from from K-12 in terms of articulating our own theories for learning, too. I think some some educators think very deeply about it. I think other educators, they don't, you know, a lot of higher ed faculty don't always see it as like their primary job to be teachers. They see it as their primary job to be researchers. So, of course, in this moment, we're all facing this, I think, tremendous reckoning with what it means to to teach and learn right now because our environment and because those tools um have changed for some people really fundamentally so anyway i'm I'm agreeing with you that we need to have critical conversations not just about what we're learning but about the tools we're using yeah so to build on something you also said in there was uh, i just read this article like maybe 10 minutes before we connected (laughs) from slate about how no no student should ever have to listen to a lecture on zoom and I have a kind of nerve that every time I hear that, you know, the lecture is dead and that we can't lecture in that, like, to me, the lecture, maybe this is the school that I went to, small liberal arts school, where we had a lot more proximics and contact with our fellow learners and with our teachers. But the lecture was always interactive, that even when the, you know, the speaker would go on for 30 minutes, um, well, two things. One, there was asynchronous prep for this synchronous time. So that communicates very much to the kind of the digital moment. And two, back channeling was going on all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, our notes were sort of prepped for a back channel that you would have discussing over coffee, the lecture that you just listened to. Or those that knew how to sketch note were kind of exploring these nonlinear methods. There's always like activities going on during the lecture. It's not like the students would just unplug, turn out, and this is just kind of a passive um, a passive transfer of knowledge. And so that's the part that I think these digital tools also get at is that all this back channeling is now like right here in front of us. You know, I mean, I'm thinking even of my last course that I took in live time, we as students were back channeling all the time. We would open up a Google doc or have a chat going. And literally as the professor was talking, we're all communicating. And so, you know, those are kind of things that I think 
this environment also sort of gets at. Um, in your article, you also wrote, these low stakes responses help you to take the temperature on your students' understanding of the course content. And so this is kind of that live time interaction part that um, I was talking about. So my own experience with low stakes pulse taking has been with check-ins and checkouts, mm-hmm. um, a quick Google form, five minute writings at the end of class, or displayed work up on the wall for group feedback that may be a little bit more elementary context. And these softer documentation methods make me feel more like an ethnographer than a teacher. They help me keep an oral social construction continuous between teacher and student, student and student, and maybe even student itself in a kind of a deepening of metacognition. In this speculative narrative, what does taking the temperature look like for you? Like, like how, how does that work? Yeah, so there's a few kind of concrete practices that I was imagining that I've used as well. I should have mentioned I teach online writing classes myself. So um, as people assume with my title, I don't ever teach, uh, but I actually teach pretty regularly um, because I think it's important to kind of maintain your teaching when you're supporting teachers. So I'll just sidebar that. Um, But there's a couple practices I was considering as I was writing this for for taking the temperature. Uh, One that I really like for online environments is polling. Um, So online polls are this really great way to kind of quickly ask a question and have students immediately see the response. So there are lots of different tools that you can use for, for, for polling, but the idea as instructors to kind of queue up before your synchronous class um, a question or a few questions where you might sort of take a pause um, at a certain point in the conversation and check in and see, hey, how are we feeling about, how, how, do, how would we rate our understanding of concept X, right? Or what is your attitude towards concept Y? Um, and I typically try to keep these polls simple, right? So they'd either be kind of a multiple choice sort of scenario, so you can kind of easily see how different collective groups of students are all feeling. And students like it too, because they get to kind of see, oh, wow, this number of people feel the same way I do, or this number of people feel differently than I do. And that could become a, a launching point uh, for, for interactivity, for, for back-channeling potentially, because I agree that um, mm-hmm. actually a real benefit to learning online is, is, is the kind of visibility of that back channel. I think that uh, scares <laughs> at least some instructors in, in, in the higher ed context because they're used to feeling like they're the person in control and that they're able to see everything. But I mean, that that feeling of control has always been a myth. <laughs> Honestly, we never really know what people are doing in their brains or with each other. And I kind of like that online learning makes that visible. Um, so anyway, polls, I, I used open-ended polls too, though, for things like um, collecting responses to a prompt and letting students sort of upvote particular questions. So that's another way to take the temperature, right, is to kind of use a poll as a way to say, hey, what questions do you still have about this idea? And to allow students to see each other's questions anonymously posted in a polling form and to, again, kind of upvote questions that other, that students have, the same students have, to then prioritize what kinds of questions still need to be tackled uh, while you're together in live time. the other kind of taking the temperature technique I was I was thinking about um, actually was exactly that that concept of doing some collaborative note taking um, in a space like a Google Doc where everyone can kind of see each other work in real time. Um, an activity I like to do for that um, is one where you actually have students create in a Google Doc like a table that sort of reviews like okay every you know get into small groups and have each group fill out a portion of this table that might create like a study guide or a crib sheet or kind of final note sheet of, of a certain idea or concept 
um, that, that I think functions largely as review as a way for everyone to quickly see, oh, okay, here we go. Here, here are the blocks of the table we filled in successfully. Here are the blocks of the table we're still thinking about or still confused about. Um, you could manage that a number of different ways. You could have everyone work on one table and fill in those rows or columns. You could divide and delegate certain roles or responsibilities. It really depends on the task at hand. Um, but between polling and collaborative note taking, there's really a lot you can accomplish that. Um, and you can do that in, in Zoom in real time and have that be really effective leveraging of that space, uh, more so than just the sort of straight up talking. I will say I'm with you that that, that that lecture as a concept, I think, gets oversimplified in a lot of the think PC conversations. Um, and at the same time, I do think skills like sketch noting and note taking, they do need to be kind of explicitly taught in some ways or explicitly recognized as being okay practices. Um, something I see happen in higher ed, and I'd be curious to know if this happens in lower ed too, is I think some students feel like they'll be punished <laughs> if they're not performing attentiveness or if they're not performing um, a, something on camera that makes it look like they're deeply listening and not doing anything else. Practices like sketchnoting, for example, may make it look like on camera students aren't paying attention or aren't performing, even if they're even more deeply invested than, than performing a kind of listening face. So I do think as instructors, we need to do a lot of explicit um, kind of care-taking work and, and expectation-setting work with our students to open up and, and let them know that the variety of practices that they might bring towards processing and absorbing materials are, are okay, that they won't get punished um, for trying to engage in multiple ways or trying not to perform that sense of attention. And that's, I guess, what I like about taking the temperature too, is that it's also an instructor's way of gesturing to students that they care about how students are feeling or they're wondering about how students are thinking about things. Um, a lecture can feel kind of one way because it might not be a check-in with students. Um, but activities like pulse taking and taking the temperature at strategic points can also be part of demonstrating that care and that curiosity into how students are, are processing the material. So, so I kind of bundled <laughs> a few different yeah, concepts no, there I, in your straightforward question. But. No, I, I definitely hear you. But I do hear a couple of things. One is that I didn't have this experience of the social construction around learning so much. I mean, at the, in, in the house I did, you know, we came from a household where we, we sat at a round table and books were talked about and like that was a, a sharing experience growing up. But in schools, not so much. And, you know, I can say that I didn't experience that until university. And I can think of one professor in particular, well, I, three professors I'll, I'll mention. One uh, writing teacher, so right up your alley, um, she taught a creative writing class. And one of her strategies was you would turn in your work or your draft or whatever, and she would begin 20 minutes of the next class reading one student's work and going very deep into that one student's work. And that was incredibly powerful for me. Like all of a sudden, these, this whole writing process, it wasn't this dark hole that I'm just sending this writing into and never getting anything more than like a, you know, a handwritten response and a number on. Um, suddenly it was something we're going to talk about. Um, two, there was a teacher who did check-ins and checkouts, And it was kind of quirky. He would basically just hand out little pieces of paper at the end of class and say, what are your top questions about the theme? And then he would begin the next class addressing five or six of those questions. 
So there was this constant kind of dialogue going. So, I mean, now that can happen much more easily in real time with our tools. Uh, but those were, um, those to me communicated and, and then went on to kind of like how I thought about how this would go in the future. And then the third one was just small seminar class where you show up and you had better be ready to present on part of the readings or you're going to feel like a fool in that environment. Like you have to really like be an active um, teacher in the class as well. And so small seminar was definitely the core of a liberal arts education for me that you, you had to show up and be ready to basically teach and discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then how does that translate into elementary classroom? Um, so the lecture, let's say the read aloud, you know, when you read to the kids for 15 minutes, well, this can often be very lecture-like and it's just a teacher reading. Um, and, you know, it's important for kids to be read to and hear the intonation of voice and hear that sort of interaction with the text. Um, but I think what started opening up was the think aloud, that stop reading for a moment and just speak out loud, you know, contemporaneously about what you're reading so that you can teach and model that interaction with the text. And then the most powerful was then um, front-loading, like, the discussion for kids, like maybe even giving them a quote of the text and say, this is a really emotional part of the text. And when we get to it, I'm going to ask you this question. And then the whole time the kids are listening, one, they're waiting for that piece of text. And two, they know that they're supposed to be sort of processing towards this kind of cooperative goal. And then we stop and discuss, you know, pair, share, whole group, the whole class is engaged. And so all those little kind of low thresholds, participation marks, I think that starts teaching this idea of, um, this is what's expected. When you come into a group of community of learners, you have to be active participant in that. And so I think that would translate into the digital space as well. And maybe more aligned to the ways that you're teaching students and professors. Um, we do a lot of teaching or did in this last job I had was a lot of teaching just on Google Docs comments. Like what is a meaningful comment to leave mm-hmm. on someone's text? What does that look like? What are some good examples? Um, maybe we even took like, physical papers, put them on the wall and use post-its to model the comment section. And then we took the post-its and gave them like rubrics and like, this is a strong comment because, so the kids got an idea of like, you know, we are not victims of the kind of market forces of social media that in many ways dumb down our interactions, but these tools can, we can elevate into kind of very powerful constructivist elements as well. Sorry, that was kind of a monologue. <laughs> let, me, let, let me jump to the, another question. So um, uh, along the lines of broadening bandwidth, you wrote, some days this process feels harder than others, but you can't remember the last time you had such a clear sense of how your students understand the course content. I thought of my initial experiences with students working through multiple bandwidths, oral responses, graphic modes, photo, video, nonlinear whiteboards, collaborative writing spaces, Um, and was blown away by how much of student thinking I had access to all of a sudden. Mm. The challenge became more how to guide all this into a workflow, iterations toward a product. I can't recall the research at the moment, but basically it says that moving from text to text leads to greater retention. And I would call that a fallacy of efficiency, that a deeper processing, a more grounded cognition occurs when we choose the more cognitively taxing job of activating the metaphorical mind that often accompanies moving between modalities. Mm-hmm. A more grounded cognition occurs based on this idea of embodied simulation. As a writing teacher consultant, what are your insights into how multimodal ideation enriches the process and product of writing? 
Mm-hmm. And that's a very elementary thinking, but I think you're also working in those spaces. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's elementary at all. And it reminds me a lot. Um, I think if a foundational scholar for me in thinking about the value of multimodal uh, communication for improving understanding and and uh, expression of KDs is, is uh, Gunter Kress and the kind of New London multiliteracies group. Um, and so I, I will lean upon Kress a little bit in, in my response to this, which is Kress makes the case that, for precisely what you actually just said, which is that when we invite learners and writers in particular to try and express themselves in a modality that maybe they uh, hadn't thought to turn to first or um, maybe hadn't developed as much sort of complex skill or or, or deep engagement with, um, it actually does deepen their understanding and stretches their understanding of a concept further. When it comes to writing at the college level in particular, I'll pivot to kind of my my own experience working with students um, and instructors on this. Um, something that tends to happen for for college writers is that they get really stuck in certain kinds of formulas around what writing means and looks like, especially for our first year writing students um, of traditional age, right? So our eighteen year old writers coming straight from high school, um, they have learned a lot about how to write to tests, how to write to uh, very particular, what we call rhetorical situations um, for very constrained kinds of audiences. And I know why that happens. And something that we need to respond to, I think, at the college level is to say, hey, let's try and get outside of those formulas a little bit. Let's try playing, thinking of writing as play again, and imagine what an idea looks like when we try to illustrate it, or when we try to vocalize it, or when we try to um, create um, multimedia configurations of ideas. That can really spark new thought for students so they're not falling back onto stale formulas for what writing needs to be and look like. In other words, when we ask students to express themselves in multiple modes, it can activate different ways of thinking in and around an idea. Good writing is good thinking, ultimately. Um, we can't write well. We often get stuck when we run out of ideas or when we're not sure where an idea is going to take us. So in my mind, working multimodally, and this could be digitally or on paper, um, can spark and take us down new pathways that we might not have been able to see before. Of course, if your final product that you want your students to create is a piece of text-based writing, we do of course have to return to thinking about what skills students need to to develop expertise in in textual modalities. Um, However, even basic text-based documents are multimodal. We kind of forget actually that that writing, text-based writing, is visual. When we talk about writing, we're thinking about what we are seeing with our eyes or potentially what we're hearing if we're processing a text through a text-to-speech application, for example. But we can even be teaching multimodal concepts like document design because that shapes a reading experience and can also shape a writerly experience from there. So I think it's even sort of fallacious to say that like writing is monomodal. (laughs) Like everything is multimodal when we think about the communicative apparatus available to us. Um, and so one of my goals is to make that more visible so that we give students more options for activating that, that good thinking that can make good writing occur. 
No, and fascinating to me because you're talking about a nonfiction writing context. And so I would normally associate this kind of multimodality within the text. The very Roland Barthes is what I've been reading lately. And the way that he breaks apart literature is across different bandwidths. He has his own kind of coding system. And when you go through this coding system, you realize that he's activating music, he's activating art, he's activating all this other kind of metaphorical thinking within the way that he talks about text. And so that in a nonfiction environment, that is very fascinating. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but I like it. <laughs> um, you also wrote that, sorry, um, at first year, you'd record lectures for everything you think is relevant to the course. A task you soon realized was overwhelmingly time-consuming, but now you've started to shape what you say, what you say in pre-recorded mini lectures based on what you're hearing and seeing from your students. Just prior to reading your article, I was looking at some Mike Wesch videos where he talks about this co-creation of content and responding to student work and then pushing forward from there. And then when he creates his, he makes podcasts for his students and he does it while he's like running around the city. He's processing all these things, but then he also like responds directly to things that students say. I mentioned this Dr. Davidson I had in Chinese studies who every class had this kind of checkout and you had to write questions. And then when it came back, he would um, respond to those questions. And as an elementary teacher, I've used something similar, the project Thinking Move North, South, East, West, where you get students to reflect on what they need to know, uh, a stance or a suggestion, what they're excited about and what they're worried about in this project or, or learning trajectory. And students' reflections gave us this um, kind of way of immediately responding to them, like Dr. Davidson, in the next class. So that you had this constant pulse and this constant call and response going between the students. What does this look like, um, like moving it forward in students' responses? What does that look like for you? Hmm. It can take a few different forms. And I appreciate that you mentioned Mike Wesh. Uh, Karen Costa is also a great voice on video um, and teaching video. So both of them, I think, are really pivotal people to consider if you're trying to think more about video production and video as communication with students. Um, but to answer your question more directly about, um, you know, basically what, uh, how, how do you work forward from student response to, to kind of video? Um, I'd say my first reaction to that question is to give students some prompts for making their own videos too, if you want them to be engaging with you in that way. There are lots of great tools that you can use to kind of have it look like, right, video responses are part of a community of, of, of inquiry rather than just a kind of static response or passive response to um, a resource. And the reason in the article that I mentioned recording every single lecture is I think a lot of our instructors that, that I worked with had this impulse that they had to try and flip all the content to be online. Um, that content itself was the driver of the class. But I think really good teaching kind of takes a little bit of a step back from that content and says, okay, why do I need students to do that content? What do I want students to do with this content? <laughs> and then how do I want them to express or show understanding of the things that I want them to do with this content? Um, so when it comes to, to video and how students might respond to video in particular, again, you could have students with uh, in a prompt say, hey, use the video to, to talk out your understanding of you know, this question I posed in my own video. So kind of create that sort of dialogue. 
um, even in asynchronous time. And the activity of asking students to produce their own video responses and share them with each other can be a way for them to enact, um, to, for the learner to kind of become a teacher too, right? To offer an explanation or understanding, which can be a great way of students uh, learning as well. Of course, it has to be aligned with what you want students to get out of the material. So another way around this is if you want students to be responding to your own kind of off-the-cuff videos, response videos, where you're working with their ideas, you could have students even just produce written responses to your videos too. Little check-in, that could be even short quizzes. Um, and I wouldn't say like a multiple choice quiz is the way to go in this case if you want to foster authentic dialogue. I think I'm imagining more like a survey or a quick temperature check, even as they're watching your videos about how they're responding and reacting to it. So in other words, I think we could be thinking a lot more um, imaginatively about the possibility of video um, in asynchronous time as, as a provocation for conversation rather than as just a content dump or a way to give students just um, a, a video version of a textbook. Um, there's a place for that, right? There are maybe core concepts where videos can be really powerful for illustrating certain key words, concepts, ideas. Uh, but to imagine video as only that is to the point I was trying to make really taxing. You don't want to be reproducing an entire textbook. That's not your job as a teacher. There's lots of, I mean, oodles of content out there. There's no point in recreating that wheel. Um, but what you can't recreate is that dialogue, is the checking in with your students and the questions they have, and using video for you as a way to humanize the responses to the students. And then in turn, having student responses be a way of, of humanizing their own learning and their own thinking and their own responses. Um, all the while acknowledging, of course, that video in terms of technical bandwidth and capacity might be really challenging for some students. So uh, something we want to think and keep in mind with any video is, um, or excuse me, what we, we, we want to keep in mind if we're asking students to produce videos is also just to give them options in case they, um, you know, don't have Wi-Fi networks at home that have the capacity to upload giant bandwidth hogging videos. Um, or if we want to give them the option to kind of live stream with you instead of having to record and upload, um, you'd want to think about how to scaffold that. But that's just to say that we don't want to get too rigid in terms of how students are producing multimedia because there are technical constraints. Um, but I do think that if we can give students that option and think of ways to scaffold that, it can be useful for humanizing the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, I've been watching students, I mean, watching teachers as we as they've kind of gone through the COVID responses. And uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure. keeping notes on the Google Doc. Yeah, I just noticed that. that. I was like, oh, shoot, I could have been helping um, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't That's a new strategy. Helpful. I haven't actually done that before. But what, but what I've been looking for, if anyone, else, if anyone knows, is how to timestamp things a little bit more clearly. So, like, as I'm having a discussion with someone or listening to a lecture or whatever, timestamp comments, you can kind of come back to it really quickly. So what I was explaining was like when the teachers were moving kind of school online, I mean, some of the greatest teachers that I know were just trying to move their entire course online and were spending hours and pulling their hair out on how to create all this content. And I mean, the mammoth efforts, like it has to be applauded, but I was sort of like thinking along these lines of like, no, you have to kind of, you know, plan your content out, but then you have to insert yourself and have those most meaningful human interactive moments or whatever. And as far as like student production of video, again, I think we start, we tend to think of like the video as like the one shot stop and start. So 
what I have played around with younger kids is instead of getting this eight minute rolling video of them kind of wandering through all the, you know, their, their improvisational minds is getting them to produce a 60 second video and mm -hmm. teaching them some iteration strategies and some production strategies so that they can like really focus on that kind of segment of time and how do I, you know, graphically represent, but mostly the audio part, like we really focused on kind of the oral presentation part. And that could be to an extreme where we even worked with an entire fourth grade class and they worked for five weeks to create a one minute video in groups. Mm. And so like all of their writing and all of their production capabilities went into this very impactful 60 seconds that they had. And so like teaching kind of like the different modes that video can take, you know, video can just be a TikTok video that you record mm -hmm. and put up online. I mean, I'm not doing that. I don't <laughs> think you're doing that, but like, that's where a lot of the kids are. Um, yeah. So like teaching that, like it, it's, this is very powerful kind of reflective tool. Um, and so a simple like monologue strategy might be record yourself once, listen to it, record, so, you know, go through at least three iterations and get feedback kind of after each one, self-feedback, peer feedback, um, and for kids, because they're learning communicative strategy, not just uh, of the words, but they have to work out intonation. So they might record really close up and just focus on the mouth and the face. Then they might move back and focus on more gestural impact of, how, of what to do with the body while they, while they speak. Um, those are things that I hope by the time they get to your level, these kids are sort of like pros at like creating this online content a little better. Um, so you also write, instead of, this is kind of focusing on this idea of like using your asynchronous time to make more impactful synchronous moments. So instead of using Zoom time for lectures, you now use the time to synthesize the work that students submitted asynchronously, commenting on their ideas and inviting students to build upon their peers' contribution as a way to leverage the real-time interactions. I, I believe you're talking about the basic flipped method, and mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to play with in work products over longer periods of time, the interplay between the synchronous and asynchronous. I feel like it breaks down the episodic nature of our traditional time segments of class time. It brings this continuity to the work between inside and outside the classroom. And I wonder if you also find it engages the mind with content in a much broader spectrum of mental states, maybe even embodiment of space, if that makes sense, that working in the class means one thing, but working in a cafe might mean something else or working at home might mean something else where the student can kind of move to these different situated cognitions, so to speak. For example, some K-12 students are thriving in this online learning world. The focus, um, the focus in, in, they focus and produce better in their own space. School can be um, an introvert's nightmare not to mention the social pressures on special needs students. My first question here is about how a writing process enriches, uh, is enriched by prioritizing the human interaction during the Zoom time. And second, how might teachers front load a lot of the processing and thinking during the asynchronous time? And maybe a third question, sorry to get to, to uh, speaking of cognitive load, um, is this flip, flipped method a fixed thing or can direct teaching the lecture alternatively exist in live time? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with the uh, just question about um, maybe how we can help students thrive asynchronously and think about learning space and how our concept of learning spaces is maybe changing and, and growing more fluid. Um, and then I'll move to that 
kind of question about the flipped classroom and um, those sort of long-term implications of, of, of where, where and when kind of lecture fits in. Um, because I think to our earlier conversation, there, there is space for a little bit of lecture in synchronous time. It's really more a matter of what you're trying to get out of it and, and how you're activating understanding during that time. So I have long suggested to instructors an activity, a really concrete activity, which is to create a, when you're planning a class for the first time, I, I, I have this graphic organizer where in one column, you kind of list the, the few learning activities you consistently do in your class. So that might be things like small group discussion, large group discussion, peer review, individual writing time, individual reading time, right? Try and be really comprehensive and, and really try to, to categorize and systematize what's, what are, what's everything that I do in a classroom. And then the next column of that organizer, think about, okay, what materials, what physical materials do you need to make that kind of activity possible? Do you need tables and chairs? Do you need computers? Do you need notebooks, right? And the next column to think about, okay, not just what materials do you need, but which materials are flexible, right? Maybe you don't need tables and chairs to have small group discussion, for example. It can be nice to have a space for everyone to sit, but is it necessary, right? So to kind of like, like lay out, like what are all the possible materials with which you could do this kind of activity? And then what do you absolutely need? Like what will go wrong <laughs> fundamentally if you don't have those things, right? And the next column over and say, okay, now that you've kind of cataloged physically, what spaces are required to do the activities that you have, how might you facilitate these activities, right? Does, does listing out your material needs um, open up something that you weren't expecting? Or does listing out your material needs um, shut down <laughs> some avenues that you were anticipating? And to kind of listen there, okay, now that I see that this could maybe be more flexible and happen in these spaces, now like think about um, how your goals change, right? If certain materials are there, certain materials aren't there. Um, and so the, the point of the graphic organizer is to kind of activate what I call critical technological awareness, right? Is understanding of how tools and technologies um, sustain or limit certain kinds of interactions and what that might mean at the level of, of doing lesson planning and course design. It's a, it's a time consuming activity, but I think it, it kind of makes visible things that we take for granted about asynchronous and synchronous learning. So in some ways, I think in the conversations about asynchronous and synchronous learning, I wish we were actually talking more about materiality too, because it's not just time that is changing how we learn. It's, it's as you were alluding, it's space um, and it's access. And it's, I mean, we even talked about this, I think, in terms of student privacy a little bit, in terms of thinking about how students' home spaces might make learning possible or impossible in some cases for them. But even as instructors, we want to think about how we leverage those materials to do the kinds of things that we want to do. So to that end, if we think about the flipped classroom and that notion of flipped classroom where you're having content be delivered asynchronously, let's just say, and having the synchronous space entirely for interaction or discussion, it's worth thinking about, okay, um, what might be the benefit and the limitation of having content only happen outside of real time, right? What might be the benefit and limitation of having content happen in real time? And so once you kind of map out 
um, that that kind of organizer of like space time activity learning goal that might help you come up with even more flexible configurations of where, how, when, and why your activities are happening. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of like running design sprints with teachers to create the ideal learning space and you know, having to work in pairs, basically like a D school design sprint, but we kind of tailored it specifically mm -hmm. what we were trying to get at. And the idea was that you had to interview a teacher and then kind of design a learning space for them based on their um, philosophy of, of teaching and learning. And then they get feedback and then they bring that to the students. And then the students had to interview their teachers about designing this space for them. And then they made that space in Minecraft and like, you know, they opened up all these kind of points of discussion. The tools weren't so important. It was just butcher paper and Minecraft. Um, but what was important was that it created all this interaction of like, this is what needs to be in the classroom. And also what I was trying to get at was this kind of giant decluttering of everything hmm. that you walk into an elementary classroom. There's just, there's just too much stuff, mm -hmm. there's too much furniture. There's too many posters on the wall. There's too much um, kind of clutter stimulus, like not a logical visual stimulus, but like there's too many things to distract. And so I think that bringing the technological elements into that to me, the best place to teach that was in this, very situated space of the classroom and then start talking about how this also travels to other spaces, that these things that we do in class have these technological tools that we will use in line of time right here. And then those tools help us carry it home and carry it to other learning spaces as well. So which kind of brings me to my next question is about, more about like the tech stack itself. You're right. Um, and I love how just kind of, you can kind of just un unpack this one page article that you wrote, but it actually goes all these different directions. So you wrote, you've given them a variety of materials to peruse when they're not in Zoom. In fact, reading, using a social annotation tool to leave comments and ask questions about course readings, taking diagnostic quizzes and writing reflective responsive essays where they can synthesize and analyze findings from the content they've watched and read. Again, for elementary school students, most tech tools go through a kind of gradual release where students observe me teaching with it. We do it together as a class and then in groups before, and then they do it in groups and before they do it individually. So by the time they get to doing it individually, they've had all of this other practice. We may even go as far as a sprint session if the procedures of the tech are complex. So for example, a garage band would need a heavier kind of uh, sprint training before they go into use multi-track recording and stuff. Um, referring to Wesh again, I'm sorry, he's kind of my go-to for all this stuff. Um, how is this course design? He uses the same tools um, how we use the same tools iteratively, the content and concepts change, but the assignments with the tools, uh, they may repeat. I find this very elementary friendly where expected patterns and tools increase Gibson's affordances as experiences build, capabilities get better with repetition. Mm -hmm. Belief in the intelligent use of tools leads to more difficult to reach goals. What are your experiences teaching a tech stack with students? How do you onboard adult instructors who may not be as open to these bandwidths? And what specifically tools, what do you use to put, you know, using this idea of uh, Papert's low floor, wide walls and high ceilings? And again, sorry, that's a lot to throw at you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, it's no problem. It's they're really good questions, very thoughtful. So in terms of helping students adopt new tool solutions, I want to go back to this concept of alignment because I do think that new tool adoption cannot happen unless it's really clear how those tools align with the task at hand or what you're asking the students to accomplish. 
So I gave a pretty long laundry list of tools in that, that article to, to really more demonstrate the range of what's possible rather than to kind of advocate for adopting all of those things all at once. Um, so I do think, mm -hmm. I love what you describe in terms of the gradual onboarding with elementary students. I think it's adult learners, college learners need the same kind of scaffolding. And so I do something very similar to what you do actually, which is have a video usually typically that demonstrates, okay, here's me using the tool or if it's not a video then just like a screenshot list of steps on, okay, when you, you know, just really like a, like a technical walkthrough of how you use the tool in context. So I, I don't rely necessarily on the tools documentation. Many of these tech tools have their own internal documentation, but I don't rely upon that. So I think it helps for students to see it in the context of the work that they're doing, whether it's with the readings that I'm asking them to do or within the learning management system that we're using um, with our class information that makes it much more concrete. Um, and then give them some kind of like low stakes, ungraded activity to, to do something within that tool. Right? I like the idea of, or an activity I like is something called a scavenger hunt, where you sort of give them a list of things like, hey, try to do this in this tool, try to do that in this tool. And they can go through it to turn in their scavenger hunts, right? And say, hey, I tried finding all these things. Here's evidence that I kind of played around and, and did it and learned the things. And then they can get into the actual assignment or activity. Um, it's no small thing. So I do think that instructors need to be judicious in their tool choices, right? Pick, pick a stack um, that's going to best reflect what they need students to do by the end of the class. But I do think that gradual onboarding and, and contextualized learning is gonna be a lot more effective than say, hey, go and watch the 30 minute intro video made by the tech company um, where someone clicks through all the features. That's uh, pretty mind numbing, <laughs> frankly, and, and not especially helpful. So everything needs to be really aligned with exactly what you want students to do in the tool itself. Um, you know, with instructors, it's the same thing. They actually have to use it themselves as learners to get it. Um, so recently I was actually working with a couple of instructors on using social annotation for reading. So um, in particular, we were talking about this tool called Hypothesis um, that basically allows you to add highlights and notes in PDFs and in websites. And I could kind of explain it, they could kind of get it, but it was only when the instructors themselves started to annotate a reading together there that it, it clicked. Like, oh, this is how this tool works. This is uh, the benefit, these are the limitations. So I think for inst on the instructor training side, it, we do need to be learners ourselves and be open to learning, to, to enacting what we have our students do as learners so that we can fully embody um, the experience. Yeah, so a couple of things. One is um, with younger kids, you can tell which ones have had this kind of tech tinkering in their life somewhere and often it comes from gamers the gaming culture is pushing a lot of the academic tech that we're using whether we realize it or not um, and so some of these gamers will open up a google doc and they just immediately see tabs and start clicking around and they're learning functionality like within the first 15 seconds they're probably screwing up the documents and messing everything up too but i totally applaud that like the first activity i do with a group of 25 kids is and this is like right when Google Docs was coming was coming out, so people had never experienced this. They had never done this collaborative writing time, and we would just throw all students on a Google Doc with a task, and let them struggle for like four minutes and just have it be complete chaos. 
And then we'd stop, get away from the computers, talk in a group, make a new strategy, go back at it. And by the third or fourth iteration, they basically all came up with, we need our own space. We're all writing in the same space. And we talked about space strategies and how to do that kind of stuff. But it was really like letting them play with it that really taught me what they're capable of doing and understanding. And the same with everything else. Like if we were going to use Minecraft, none of us teachers were Minecraft players, but we brought the kids in for a week and ran Minecraft labs for an hour before school and had the kids show us what this does and you know what all the functionality was. And we just kind of went side by side with all the students and they would like talk out loud with what they were doing. So we learned really quickly how all of this stuff works. And I feel like we need those kind of experiences for all of our kind of tech tools. I'm learning mm -hmm. OBS software for like broadcasting, which is one of the most exciting in the last 12 months. It's one of the most exciting technological advancements that are going on. All this NDI technology of how you can throw things around inside your machine and take this um, Zoom conference and then throw it into another screen and create graphics around it and stuff. Um, so it, it is really exciting, but all this technology is pushed by gamers. So to get at the cool concepts, you basically have to look at hours and hours of gamer videos of how they explain all these things. And so it's not the context that I really need it for. It's only by going through my particular process and procedures that I'm looking to connect that I can kind of figure it out. But not many professors are going to have that kind of patience or even tinkering experience with technology. And so that's what I, I think you're kind of getting at is that there has to be this sort of playground mm -hmm. and also has to be this um, direct purpose for it. Sorry, I'm kind of wandering all around, but I do want to get to the, uh, a couple more questions. Let me check with your time because I know everyone is working under time constraints these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I should probably go in about five you? minutes. So I might have Can time for one more question um, at least okay. in this block. Yeah. Great. No, no problem. So um, let's go to this one. It's about uh, saving student time. And this one gets a little more t tangential. So it's super different. This is what you write in your article. It's super different from anything you've done before. And you fumbled through it a lot. During the first week of the quarter, you forgot to publish the course resources and learning management system. So you got a flurry of panicked emails from students. And these mistakes still don't feel great. But you're getting um, used to offering a quick apology, troubleshooting on the fly, and then moving along. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit of kind of what I want to ask about, and that's that the biggest frustration as a student in graduate school is always trying to figure out the needs within the syllabus, mm -hmm. like decode what each professor needs, make your time calendar when things need to be prepped and turned in. And this can also often be a very frustrating thing. Now that we're moving into the tech world, it's increasingly frustrating because we're also learning all of these tech tools. What can you do as a professor to streamline this, to make it a little bit easier? Hmm. Great question. I think the first thing instructors can do to make that a little easier on the students is honestly to just, and this is going to sound overly simplistic, but reduce the asks in online environments, right? Try as an instructor to really prioritize what is the one thing or what are the two things that you need students to do between maybe each synchronous meeting? Right? I think that a lot of instructors have a tendency to overplan, to overprepare. I have that tendency. So it's something that, that I need to take my own advice on this often. And I think the more we can reduce the tasks themselves, I don't think it reduces the quality or the rigor of the instruction at all. I think it really just reduces cognitive load. And it has the added benefit of giving us the time to 
uh, accommodate mistakes or fumbles when they happen, um, to make space for students to learn to manage all the different things their instructors are asking them to do. Because that is time consuming, right? To, to, especially if you're taking multiple classes to juggle all of the expectations and asks of those classes. So if each individual instructor was much more mindful of how much work they were actually giving and to be stripping down to the essentials, especially in online learning environments, that would be of tremendous help to students. Beyond that, I do think that students, there's, a, there's an academic skill to learn around time management and task prioritization. This is an ongoing skill. Adults <laughs> struggle with time, humans struggle with time management. Um, so this is not to say that like this is something anyone's going to master in the span of a class at, at, at any age. Um, but instructors can also model really good task and time management by giving students kind of clear, actionable lists of things that they can do and, and pointing them perhaps to, um, to tools or to processes for how they might um, set expectations and estimate how much time particular tasks might take. It will not be perfect because everyone works differently. It takes different amount of time for different people to produce different tasks. Um, but the more we can model and the more we can simplify, um, I think the better the experience will be for everyone. Can I throw in one more question? Sure. <laughs> so uh, you end your article going into more areas of kind of uh, social things like uh, there are new ethics around these tools of, of what students are required to reveal. Do they need to have their cameras on? And there is also this kind of loss of innocence of the idealized democratic space of the classroom that students enter. We think of everyone as having the same access, but now we're having the backgrounds of their Zoom chats and seeing that not everyone has the same access. And maybe it's even the physical tools themselves of you know connecting or bandwidth or whatever else. Um, any suggestions for teachers entering? Because we're entering a very new realm. Like this time we're not moving real-time class into online class, but we're actually trying to develop um, community with online learners. And I believe it's you all who, that have been teaching online for some time and have had to develop this kind of community among learners. What is your advice for establishing these new ethics and also for growing community? Right, so my first piece of advice would actually be to work with students on this. Um, if they are mature enough to have the conversation, I will say that. So if you have um, students who are old enough to voice their um, their needs, their interests, their understanding of um, how they feel in learning spaces, I would have some conversation with students about, hey, let's work together to set some class rules or to set some class norms, as we might call them. Um, so the activity I usually do is I ask students this question and they can kind of collaboratively respond to what would you like to see your peers do and what would you like to see your instructor do to make your experience a good one for you, to make your experience positive. And I'm always surprised at how clearly students are actually able to articulate exactly what they want in extremely concrete ways. Um, if, for example, I'm teaching an online class right now and I did this activity on the first day, and students said, let's establish a turn order for when people should speak if multiple people want to speak at the same time. I was like, wow, what a great concrete suggestion for establishing community, but also establishing respect, right? Or also things like if you 
can't use your microphone or um, your video camera that day, please contribute to the text chat in Zoom, right? So avoiding mitigating you know, these, these hard and fast rules around like, you must always have your camera on, you must always have your microphone on. Students articulated, I think, a pretty accommodating uh, alternative, right, to engaging with each other. And they, they gave broad examples too, right, of be positive with each other, right? Um, don't judge people too quickly. Um, so they, they came to some of those broader conclusions as well. But I think unearthing from students themselves what they need to be successful is really beneficial. Uh, younger students might not be able to articulate that quite as clearly for a variety of reasons. Um, and so if you can't start from that grounded perspective, I might just say as an instructor to just, again, kind of voice positivity, <laughs> to voice understanding when things go wrong. And, and this is kind of fuzzy advice, but assume the best. I think most students are genuinely trying. I don't think most students are trying to like pull one over on us or, or, or pull the, 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 the fleece over our eyes. Like I don't think most students are trying to trick us. Um, and if they are, right, if there's kind of a bad faith relationship, that comes from a lot of things that as, as an instructor, you might not really be able to control anyway. Um, so starting from a place of trust and starting from a place of positivity and compassion feels like a, just a more sustainable model, especially when we're online and we can't really control a whole lot of anything. Hmm. No, I, this summer uh, doing different conferencing, an ITP camp at NYU, fascinated by all of this different multimodal participation in the digital space. The chats have been amazing, like like watching how some people use the chats in really creative ways, where there's always this constant information share going on in the chat about what the person's talking about. And then what I really love is the person dropping in from the cloud, the person who's not whose video is not on, but all of a sudden their voice pops up in the conversation. You're like, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Totally. Um, Dr. Kong, thank you for taking the time. Um, this is very eye-opening for me as elementary school students and I hope for other people that are kind of going through this process of setting up learning online. Where do people find uh, more about you publishing workshops? I know you have a website. Uh, can you give us kind of a heads up on um, where we can follow more and maybe even a heads up on what you're currently working on to look for in the future? Sure, right. So thank you. First of all, I feel like I always learn a ton from my colleagues across teaching in all grade levels and ages. So I know I still have much to learn as well. And I, I look forward to staying in conversation with those who want to talk about these topics. Um, my website is my name, um, www.janaecone.net. Um, that's where I keep a regular blog. I have information about my experiences, my writing, um, and workshops and speaking engagements that I give um, to colleagues across the country. Um, maybe around the world now, who knows? Um, now that we're all online, we can we can speak and work from anywhere. I am also on Twitter, pretty actively on LinkedIn. So um, I will maybe give, I'll give Chris the, the that info. Maybe he can put it in the show notes um, for people to easily access. But my Twitter handle is my name, Janae underscore Cone. That's probably the place to find my most active and regular contributions. Um, my I have a book forthcoming with West Virginia University Press um, called Skim Dive Surface, uh, Teaching Digital Reading. So it's all about how we teach reading um, in online spaces. Um, it's focused on higher ed audiences. It's part of a series on teaching and learning in higher education. 
but I do hope that there are some strategies there that work in conversation. I cite a lot of literature uh, from K-12 in that book. So I am drawing on some of that foundational work to, to talk about what it means to have students read online. When, when, is that, when does this book come out? It'll be out in spring 2021. So exact month to be determined. Great. Publication cycles right now are a little off uh, due to the pandemic, but um, it is slotted for, for sometime in the spring of next year. Great. Dr. Cohen, I'm going to uh, say goodbye here for the recording. If you would stick around for 30 seconds, then we'll say goodbye. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you.